If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. To start off with, because Mosin's book is quite newly published, in fact, not even officially published in the UK yet, I thought it would be good for him to do a reading. Actually, now that it's covered in my notes, but try to ignore that. <laughs> um, uh, perhaps from there to the chapter's end, where All right. Una changes. Here we go. I did bring my reading glasses, so you know, there may be some <laughs> surprise. Um, when Una changed, there was no pain. And yes, there was surprise, but Una had known it was coming and was already somewhat perplexed it was this delayed. And so she lay in her bed, taking it all in with her heart beating fast, but without panic, looking at her arm, touching her skin, feeling her stomach and her legs, and then using her body to stand. And her body worked as it had before. There was no sense of her balance being off or of her proportions being any different. Though she did feel lighter in a way. Darker, yes, but also lighter, less weighty, and not thinner. The weight departing not from her flesh, but from something else, somewhere else. A weight from outside her, from above her maybe, that she had borne for so long, without being aware of the bearing of it. And now it was gone, as though the mass of the planet had shifted subtly, and there was less gravity for people to contend with. Una went to the mirror and saw a stranger, but a complete stranger only for an instant. Wondrous, that mouth, those eyes. And then a stranger Una had met, a stranger who was growing familiar, whom Una greeted with a steady gaze and who gazed steadily back until they both smiled, the smallest of smiles, Una and this dark woman together, this dark woman who was so recently a stranger and who was Una, undeniably Una too. Una did not know where it came from, but a feeling of melancholy touched her then, a sadness at the losing of something. And perhaps it was her attachment to the old Una she was mourning, to the face she had known and the person she had been, the person she had lived within and appeared as. Or if it was not that, then perhaps it was an attachment to certain memories that she had evoked in herself, to memories she presently wondered whether she would continue to evoke an attachment to a person connected to that person who had been a little girl once and who had not yet lost her father and her brother and who had not yet had to struggle to keep from losing her mother. But of course, the people she had been previously themselves looked different. They looked different from how she, Una, had looked only yesterday. She had changed before she had changed. She had changed every decade and every year and every day. And so she thought there was no reason that she must lose her memories, the ones she wished to keep. And in any case, the melancholy was fleeting. At least it was fleeting that morning. 
for the lightness was stronger than the melancholy, the sense that she was escaping a prison she desired to escape. For her life had become fraught, and for so long there had been no way out. There had been that feeling, the feeling that there was no way out. But now it seemed that there might be a way out, that she could shed her skin as a snake sheds its skin, not violently, not even coldly, but rather to abandon the confinement of the past and unfettered again to grow. I love that because I think it twins uh, the existence of this book both as a piece of critical race theory and as a meditation on loss really well. In an author's note that you sent out with proofs of the book, and I think this was also published in The Guardian last weekend, you wrote that the point at which you um, became aware of your existence as a Muslim man in the West coincided with a profound sense of loss. You wrote, I had always been a brown man with a Muslim name. That had not changed. And yet something had changed. I'd lost something profound. I'd lost my whiteness. Not that I had been truly white, but I hadn't white enough as a relatively well-paid, university-educated inhabitant of cosmopolitan cities to partake in the many benefits of whiteness. And now my partial membership was being revoked. And in context of the novel, it's, it's so fascinating to me, that statement, because there's a kind of dichotomy at play. Characters in the book also lose their, in this case, literal whiteness. But for them, uh, as we just heard in that passage, there's a sense of something being gained as well. And so I was wondering at what point that inversion happened for you while you were writing, the point at which what you lost post 9-11, which turned into something so grim, transmuted into something quite beautiful that your characters experience. Well, for me, you know, it was um, immediately after 9-11, there was, as many of us uh, experienced, you know, there was the being stopped at the airport and uh, being held at immigration for many hours and people getting nervous when you got on the bus with a backpack and, and just a general sense of, of, of being undesired and being perceived, you know, not as, as human first, but as sort of a threat and a suspicious you know, character. And I wanted that to go away. I thought, you know, this is a temporary overreaction, it'll go back to normal. But as the years went by and, you know, things didn't go back to normal, I started to ask myself the question of, of um, you know, what was this thing I wanted back? And what did it mean to be able to so easily imagine somebody to be in one category and then to have imagined upon you a different category and, and without changing at all? to have a sort of external imagining of who you are shape how you're dealt with in society. And, and why you know, would somebody want to go back to the time when, when that imagining was more favorable to them? Instead of asking the question of, you know, isn't this entire process of imagining race onto each other or, or ethnicity onto each other, you know, kind of a ridiculous and very harmful enterprise? And so, um, you know, for me, it, it, it resulted in a number of moves. I eventually left my job, I started writing full time, I, I left London, I moved back to Lahore, and I, I began to, I suppose, change in my outlook on many things. I stopped wanting to succeed as a particular kind of participant um, and wanted to do something different. And I actually found that to be, in, in a way, um, you know, wonderful. I haven't gone back 
but but it was jarring for a while. In what way? Well, I think I had imagined, I guess, a particular kind of life, and I had imagined a particular kind of world. And I thought that in this world, what was going to happen was over time. The differences between us were going to sort of diminish, and ideas of sort of racial difference were going to sort of become less pronounced, and we were going to, you know, become this increasingly tolerant, you know, less unequal. I mean, you're laughing as I say it sounds completely <laughs> ridiculous, uh, but but the funny thing was, in the second half of the twenty, the last quarter of the twentieth century, many people believed this thing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's、uh, it's a completely ridiculous thing to look back on, but the idea that the world is going to keep getting better. Had somehow, you know, it was a, it was an, it was an idea that that so many of us believed in,、mm-hmm. um, and despite the wars and the inequality, you thought, okay, well, it'll become less. There'll be fewer wars. There'll be less inequality. There'll be less racism. It just, it just felt that somehow, you know, that's what the gravity of human culture was leading towards. And I didn't fully reckon with the idea that it, that's not how things are. That actually, human culture is a sort of cyclical thing. And there are moments of increased tolerance, and then there are moments of reduced tolerance, and they can last for centuries. And you know, if you ask somebody at the end of the Roman Empire, or you know, the Muslim、uh, Empire in Andalusia, or or the Ottoman Empire, or the Soviet Union, if you ask people in Ukraine and Russia now, do things keep getting more tolerant? The answer is, you know, no. They they go completely into reverse. But I hadn't reckoned with that, and and I think in a sense that was jarring. It was、yeah. it was it was the idea that. Without me doing much, things were going to get better, and it became suddenly, oh, things could very distinctly get much, much worse. To that point, the thing that sort of strikes me most about this novel is that, really, it achieves its function by forcing readers to realise how bad things can be,、yeah. <laughs> by forcing them to betray their worst biases.、Uh, in this case, in terms of race. But also, in some instances, their best impulses. And so, what happens is that you, there's a lingering sense of paranoia within the text that occurs after Anders's、uh, skin changes colour.、Um, there's a moment where he, where Anders says, he just had this sense that it was essential not to be seen as a threat. For to be seen as a threat, as dark as he was, was to risk being obliterated. And so, the novel. Haunts you with your expectation of the fact that this threat will be fulfilled, and it's a really great、uh, sort of microcosm to understand what it's like to live a racialized experience.、Um, but I did have a moment while I was reading、um, that occurred when Una and her mother went to the store, and they started stockpiling, and. I was utterly confused. I was like, "What on earth could they be stockpiling for? Like, where's the threat? Is there something that I've misread in this novel, or that I haven't paid close enough attention to?" Of course, the threat is the very same threat that Anders perceives. It's, it's the threat of the fact, or the perceived threat to them, that everyone's skin is changing colour. But that confusion that I felt sort of turned into quite a hopeful thing to me because it was a moment in which I did not associate. Race with something bad, and it strikes me that、um, the point at which the novel ends is with Anders's daughter, who lives in a post-racialized world,、uh, where she's utterly sort of repulsed by this idea of hierarchy of division. She's just confused by it. It strikes me that the 
end goal of this novel might in fact be a kind of self-deletion, that it might kind of circle back on itself um, and come to a point where the people reading it just don't understand why anyone would feel threatened by something like this happening. And I was wondering whether you had that in mind while you were writing, because it's the complete opposite of what an author usually hopes for, which is the longevity of their text. Well, um, I think that, you know, the book is about loss. So um, Anders loses his sense of whiteness uh, immediately uh, as the book begins. But he's lost his mother. Uh, his father's very unwell. Um, Una's afraid of losing her mother. Her, her father passed away some years ago. Her, her mother passed away recently. And everybody in the novel is grappling with something, you know, a fundamental loss, not least Anders' father, who's in a sense dying throughout the novel. And, and the book is, I guess, an exploration of you know, how one can lose things you know, less disastrously than some of the other ways that one can lose things. Because there are very disastrous ways to lose things um, in which you know, not only do we lose what we want, you know, um, our identity or our uh, sense of belonging or our life, but we also lose you know, our basic human decency. We lose um, our capacity to be, you know, to have some degree of dignity in, in face of what we're confronted with. And so the novel, I guess, is kind of, uh, it's in a, in a sense a kind of hospice for something. It tells the story of the end of something. And Una's, and Anders' daughter, is a young woman who now is growing up after whiteness is gone. Everybody is kind of dark in some way. And, and, and the ability to figure out what race we are has somehow mysteriously gone away. We can figure other things out. You're left-handed, or you're, you're a writer, or you're rich, or poor, you're female, male, whatever. But, but this racial aspect of it um, that we've imagined upon each other, we are unable to imagine upon each other anymore. And so she, you know, she, is, she is the beginning of something after the loss. And as far as you know, the novel, I guess, setting the preconditions for its own erasure, um, I mean, nothing would make me happier if that, if that, if that were to be achieved. You know, but I'm not sure that any novel can, can do that. But the book, I guess, gestures towards the idea that if we were to imagine our way into um, a place where we stop imagining race onto each other, um, some interesting stuff would start to occur. And, and I think, you know, Una's daughter, who's quite different from her parents and even more different from her grandmother, um, is a sign of that new beginning. Um, there was something you said to me yesterday about the book being read very differently between people who could imagine race as a discrete category through their experience of it um, versus people who had some sense of hybridity or mix within yeah. themselves, whether um, through migration or because they are they come from a mixed ethnicity. And I was wondering what that difference in reading was. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I hate to generalize on readers on sort of these sorts of categories, but I would say, without using those categories exactly, what I would say is that I think there are some readers who will, in a sense, want the novel to engage in a kind of decision about things, mm -hmm. to say, you know, who is good and who is not good, what is good and what is not good. And the novel shies away from doing that intentionally. You know, uh, you know, some people said, well, why don't you have any, you know, dark-skinned characters represented in the book? And, and since all of my books are up till now have basically almost entirely been people with dark-skinned characters, I can, you know, assure readers that it wasn't, you know, by mistake uh, that we didn't have any dogs. It was, 
It was that I thought that you know, it was very important to leave the reader with this kind of anxiety-inducing feeling that what's being generated in terms of what's happening to these people, what race means, and whether these characters are likable or not, good or not, is coming from the reader. If, if we were to have, for example, a dark-skinned character viewing this situation, that would be a very privileged position. I mean, it would, it would be a position which would stand in for my views, potentially, or for the reader's views, and allow you to sort of catch on and say, if, if, if this character thinks it's OK, it's OK. If this character thinks it's unforgivable, it's unforgivable. Whereas, whereas for me, it's more interesting for the reader to have to do that. Mm -hmm. To say, look, this is a very ambiguous situation. You know, this is a, in Una's mother case, this is, this is an openly sort of racist person being dealt with, you know, as perhaps she would want to be dealt with, sort of sympathetically. What does that mean? You know, is that okay? I think that these are things that the reader hopefully gets to grapple with. And, and I guess what the novel tries to do, um, and, and when you ask the question about you know, different people reading it in different ways, I think that, in a sense, if you are reading the novel as, I guess, uh, a kind of critique of racialism, it, it, it may be disappointing. Because it, it is instead uh, uh, intended as kind of an imaginary play space that writer and reader get to go into mm -hmm. and have this experience, which is a very uncomfortable experience and then sort of reflect on what that does. And so, and so I, think, I think people who you know, come at these questions from the stance of, like, this is really complicated, weird stuff, <laughs> um, uh, might be uh, uh, you know, less likely to be, to be put off than, than people who think that you know, it's clear that this stuff is, is horrible, which it is. But, but I guess it, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is it depends on what you want fiction to do. I think that nonfiction can very effectively you know, say what the writer thinks is. I think what, what fiction can do is create a space where readers imagine stuff into existence and then get to see what their imagining looks like and how it makes them feel. And the only way that fiction can do that is if fiction leaves space for the reader to shape it. Because then the reader's made enough of a novel that this novel is partly about you. It's not just about what I think or how the world is. So yeah, I think, I think different readers will come into it in different ways. I want to move to talking about some of the relationships in the novel, because I think that's a place uh, where there's a lot of ambiguity left for people to figure out. I guess it's, it's on us to figure out what people mean to each other and how this may strengthen our perception of their character or not, since there's no race to rely on. You really have to go by how um, the characters in this book treat each other. And um, I wanted to talk about Anders's mother, who is dead before the novel begins, um, but persists through Anders himself and through Anders's father, who sees a lot of her in his son. Um, on his deathbed, he, he can't always recognize his son, but he recognizes his wife's pattern of speech and his son's voice, which I thought was a really beautiful, affecting detail. And it's a rare instance in the novel, that kind of relationship, where the idea of tribalism or fealty, at least to me, transforms not into an idea of threat, but into an idea of duty, of care and preservation. But there is something about the way that Anders' father expresses this uh, sense of duty that 
almost bypasses Anders. It's not wholly his love for Anders. It's it's something else lingering there. And I was wondering what what that was. It's it's love on the one hand, but there is something else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's love and sense of duty. I, I guess, you know, so Anders's father is dying. And in a sense, what he's trying to do is he's trying to die well for his son, to show his son that it's possible to confront death, you know, without, without complete horror. And in a sense, to make his death into something that is good for his son in the sense of giving his son something that he can take with him. Now, I also, in a way, imagined Andrews' father as, as like this hero in a Western, you know, and the last gunshot, the last sort of gunfight. And there he is, this guy, his son has turned dark, the vigilantes are coming, all sorts of stuff is going on, they have rifles, you know, we think that maybe there'll be a shootout, which, you know, I, I won't say whether there is or isn't, but, um, but you know, I, I guess I've already hinted that there isn't. So, uh, so basically, in a sense, it's, it's, it's the last gunfight. Um, you know, it's the last ride, the last rodeo for Anders' father. And yet, he's not fighting a person. He's not sort of killing a bad guy. You know, he's, he's facing death. And so, whereas so much of, of, I guess, the tradition of the Western is about killing, uh, in a way, Anders' father's Western is about dying. And so, and so what's happening there is, I guess I should step back and say, because the book is about loss, and because the world is changing more and more rapidly, and so many of us feel that because the world is changing so rapidly, it's becoming more unsettling, and we feel that we're losing things. You know, we're losing our culture, we're losing tradition, we're losing all sorts of stuff. And as that happens, we begin to feel this sense of you know, anxiety. Then that anxiety um, can easily be transferred onto, you know, Muslims are a threat, or white people are a threat, or British people are a threat, or Russians, or Hindus, or whatever group you belong to, the anxiety we feel can be, your group is under threat. And our reaction should be to then defend our group against the threat, which I think is a very dangerous course of action. Because if we all start doing that, and we start perceiving each other as a threat to us, in human history, what we've seen is that we can build these narratives that kind of involve lots of different people coming together. And on those narratives, you can build the Roman Empire, you can build, you know, uh, uh, you can build the Ottoman Empire, you can build, and then we can take those narratives away and say that actually, you know, we're not all moving together towards some better future. We are in conflict. And then you have, you know, uh, the, the massacres of Bosnia or Syria or, um, or, or Ukraine and Russia or, or, you know, what happened in partition between India and Pakistan where suddenly this, this other narrative takes hold and hundreds of thousands or even millions of people get slaughtered as you suddenly, neighbors decide that they're just, although they've lived together for centuries, that they now can't live together and they must fight. So that's the backdrop for what Andrews' father, in a sense, is dealing with. And, and I guess what the novel explores is there's an alternative to saying that because we're anxious and things are changing very rapidly, we must identify with our so-called you know, ethnic or whatever group. And in sort of complex, multi-ethnic you know, societies, oftentimes that alternative has been to identify, you know, for example, with the whole community or with a generation. Mm. And to say that you know, what is the duty of a generation, of an older generation, towards a younger generation? And the duty is not to live forever. And the duty is not to you know, die with as much wealth as you can possibly have. The duty is to pass on 
to that younger generation. A sense of wisdom and a sense of uh, dignity and a sense of um, that in the face of mortality, which we all face, um, we, can, we can face this sort of together. And we can pass through it uh, without inflicting harm on each other. And that way of thinking is a sort of an old-fashioned way of thinking. But I think it's important because Anders' father chooses to focus in a way on his, his role as an ancestor, mm. passing something on, than on his role as a member of a tribe mm. that is threatened. And, and I, think, I think, to me, that's a very interesting space, right? The extent to which we can think of ourselves, those of us who are getting older, in a way as ancestors, um, with something to convey instead of, um, instead of as, as instigators of, of a kind of war of all against all. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing the opposite. Too many of, of the you know, um, elderly leaders of the world seem very, very predisposed towards saying that, no, this is actually a battle of all against all, and your kind against um, the other kind. Um, but Andrews' father isn't that. So as you said, it's partly his love for his son, but partly it's an older thing that has to do with, you know, what is a good death? And, um, and what is a duty that we have towards the young, even if they're not our children? Uh, and that's a duty which we don't talk about much anymore. And I think in society, we, we often abdicate that, that role. There's still, I mean, I'm, I'm, I agree with that, but there's still, there was something in my second reading that I came mm. up against um, once I got to the end of the book. And what you're, what you're left with is this world where everyone, in a, a superficial way, looks the same. I found myself wondering, how can this passing on happen after? Because I come from a background where mixing has produced wonderful things. It hasn't, I mean, it's a very personalized context, but it hasn't produced war or conflict. It's actually yeah. produced more love. I'm sure you've found this as you move from country to country. It's been a very fruitful endeavor that's created new, previously unimagined things. How can that exist in this new landscape? Well, I think the thing about mixing is that, uh, and some people have said, oh, you know, the, the world afterwards is a less diverse world mm. where everybody kind of looks the same. It's not clear if everybody looks the same. What is clear is that it's difficult for us to sort ourselves into these groups based on how we look. And in a sense, I didn't really want to get into what do people look like afterwards. They might look different. They're tall, short, you know, broad, narrow, male, female, you know, all kinds of mix. I think that actually I think of, of race as something that flattens people. I think of difference as, uh, as something which is wonderful. And of course, when different people get together and we're all different, amazing things happen. You know, just the way that our species reproduces, it involves two different sets of DNA coming together. We don't sort of just, you know, cut off a finger and it sort of grows into an identical copy. We could, but we don't. There's something about difference coming together that's fundamental to what we are as, as a species. But I'm not convinced that race, the way we think of it, is a, is, is a particularly useful or meaningful aspect of that mixing. In other words, you can have people who look different mixing, that's fine. But once you begin to assign sort of these, these categories of superiority or inferiority, you know, threatening or unthreatening, on the basis of race, 
what you're, what you're doing is actually you're flattening people into imaginary constructs that you've made for them. So it's not like this person is a violinist, you know, and they're coming together with somebody who is, I don't know, a painter, uh, and, and who knows what their kid is going to do. <laughs> it's that I've imagined onto this person a sense of, of hierarchical position and a sense of absence or presence of threat, which isn't actually in them. It's not, that's not, you know, they don't have that. It's my imagining of this race upon them that has created this kind of container. I'm not convinced that the mixing of those containers imagined onto people is the cause of so much beauty. I think it's a mixture of what's inside the container which is the cause of those beauty. So for me, it's, it's less that we have a kind of uniform world where everybody is one race. The novel is actually exploring what happens if we mess with this sorting mechanism that allows us to perceive each other in this racialized way um, and to assign a kind of value to that. So it's like saying, you know, what if we were um, unable to imagine one aspect of, of how we characterize people onto one another? But the people themselves are not changed. They're still the same people. So, so I think, uh, for me, that isn't a world where difference has been obliterated. It's a world where difference actually gets to ex express itself. Because the gentle person who we imagined as this threatening, you know, deadly giant is actually this little teddy bear, um, can be the teddy bear, right? And, um, and of course, the dangerous person who we imagined wasn't dangerous and very much is, gets to be that. But, but I don't think people are flattened. I think people are allowed to be what they are, uh, which is not all the same. There's something that happens to all the characters throughout the novel is um, one way or another, they're forced to confront, I guess, their own morality of how good they are, how good they can, um, how well they conceive of other people. There's a point um, where the race riots start in the novel where Una is fleeing from them and she sees another woman who has some children in tow and Una tries to gesture to this woman to tell her that she can take her in her car um, to safety, but the woman doesn't see. And Una's left wondering whether this impulse comes from a place where she truly wants to help this other woman or whether it comes from the instinct to be seen as good. To me that's very interesting because let's say she had helped this woman, the end result would have been the same, this woman and her children would have gotten to safety. Yeah. And yet I feel this, the novel turns on this question of does it matter? Well, I mean, and, and, and who does it matter to? Yeah. So I think if, if she had helped the woman, and the woman had heard her saying, you know, I'll help you, and, and had gotten in the car and, and escaped with Una, for the woman, it, would, it wouldn't have mattered, you know, what Una was doing. But in Una's self-conception, you know, am I somebody who is a good person? It does matter, right? That, that did she just want to be seen as being helpful, or did she really feel the desire to be helpful? And I think that's, that's useful because not, not, not because Una will ever get an answer, but because I think it's, it's quite useful to ask ourselves that question. Um, I think when we stop asking that question, you know, am I actually a decent person, we're probably more likely not to be. Um, I think if we simply sort of take for granted that I'm just wonderful and I always do good things and I'm you know, uh, the best kind of person, uh, to me there's a kind of blindness in that. And, and also because so much of, of race is, is operating at a, at a kind of half unknown level. 
you know, was that interaction genuinely racist or was it just kind of, you know, were they really threatening me or, you know, was this in my mind? So much of these sorts of interactions are in this space where it's not quite clear. I mean, a lot is clear. Uh, I mean, there are interactions where it's obvious that what's going on, but, but in many interactions, it's, it's not obvious. And so, um, and so I think that, you know, Una's questioning of her motives is Una recognizing that it matters, that, that you know, um, whether she tried to help that woman and didn't succeed, but whether she tried because she really wanted to or because of it looks bad not to want to is of great significance. Mm. Uh, and if she finds that it's because she didn't want to look like the kind of person who doesn't help, she needs to think about what that means. Um, and so I guess it's a question of importance really for Una's own journey more than for anything else. I read a New York Times review mm. of this book mm. that complained that there wasn't more violence in it. Mm. <laughs> I'm sort of completely overlooked everything that we've been talking about. Yeah. For them, that would have been a more believable conception of race. Um, and there's a sort of conflict of interest in uh, what your novel stands for and the market that it's going out to, which rests so firmly on people buying into identity politics yeah. as a marketable asset. I wondered how you've been negotiating that, whether it's something you anticipated or whether it's something that you're... My, my wife anticipated. She said, are you, are you crazy? Why are you writing this book? And I said, yeah, I mean, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> she says, you're not, on, you know, you're not on social media. You do realize that you have no idea what's going on on planet yeah. Earth. And, uh, and I, I guess there's two aspects to this. The first aspect is something changed me when I went back to Pakistan in 2009. So I'd written this novel, Maud Smoke, which sort of looked in a way at Lahore, but from the standpoint of somebody who spent a lot of time abroad, but was an insider, but also sort of westernized in some ways. And I'd written this book called Latin Fundamentalist about sort of New York City, but from somebody who was also very Pakistani and looking at, you know. And then I went back to Lahore, and I discovered that while there were many people who liked my books and, you know, uh, that there were also many people who were deeply uncomfortable with the idea that I had somehow taken upon myself the role of representative. And it was as though, you know, there was an implicit criticism that you are kind of coming here um, in your imagination, and not physically, but before in your imagination. You're coming to Pakistan, and you are kind of culturally strip mining the place and exporting the sort of cultural copper and leaving behind these polluted rivers and, you know, this, this mayhem of a world that thinks that Pakistanis are terrorists or and in my own view, I thought that was, that was you know, not what I was doing because it was clear that, you know, that the average Pakistani and the character of Motsmok are not, you know, that Motsmok is a story of sort of young urban people, you know, having sex and doing drugs in Lahore in the you know, late 1990s. And I'm, I'm certainly not saying that that's a typical you know, Pakistani experience. There is no such thing as a typical Pakistani experience. And certainly I would be the last person to say it because I'm this mongrelized, hybridized person who's lived all over the place and, you know, uh, who writes in English because Urdu is actually quite poor, you know. And then in the Rutland Fundamentalist, you know, people were saying that, uh, oh, you're trying to say that Pakistanis are terrorists, and actually I was trying to say, in a way, the opposite. And I thought, but I can't dismiss this criticism. It bothers me. To what extent am I actually engaged in this practice? I don't think I am, but it's getting under my skin. I need to think about what I'm doing. And so I wrote this novel called um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, 
And I intentionally took away all place names, all proper nouns. Mm -hmm. those, those continent names, Asia. But beyond that, we, the, the country isn't named, the city isn't named, the characters aren't named, the religion isn't named. I thought, look, I'm just going to describe things for myself. I'm not going to rely on people's idea of what Pakistan is, or Islam is, or Lahore is. Like, I'm just going to describe stuff. And I found that that was interesting for me because it was a way into this sort of notion that you know, maybe Lahore is like the universal city. Like maybe you can use Lahore as an archetype of every city in the world in the way that writers based in New York or Paris or London have been doing for a long time without even thinking about it. And I thought, oh, by taking away the particularities of the place, or the peculiarities or the, you know, the ways in which you self-exoticize, you're left with the idea that like, this is the human condition. Lahore is the human city. And I found that to be you know, kind of liberating, but also it was a way of rejecting the representation thing, because there's no word Pakistan in the book. There's no word Islam, there's, you know, the names, characters aren't named. And then my next book, Exit West, again, begins in an unnamed city, and uh, only two characters are named. And then this, this novel, again, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the word Pakistan hasn't appeared in my last three books. And I've done this in part because um, I thought that you know, I need to be to the extent I can be interrogating whether or not I am trying to sort of monetize a representative impulse. Mm. Because I don't believe that I can represent. And if I'm stumbling into it by mistake, I need to be very careful because I'm doing something that perhaps I don't agree with. Now, that's the backdrop to your question, which is, you know, uh, how do you, you know, what about the literary marketplace? Yeah. So in America, for example, it's, it's almost the opposite. If in Pakistan, the, and there are many people in Pakistan saying, you know, well done, you know, you're a Lahori boy or a Pakistani guy and you've done well. You know, it's like a team sport. But there are many people who also say, you know, you're, you're represented, you know, you're a sellout doing you know, all this stuff. Uh, and I then say that, you know, if I wanted to sell out, I think literary fiction writer would have been, you know, low on my list of potential. Uh, uh, I should have stayed in the business of joining you know, join the you know, civil service. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I think that, you know, the... Um, what I saw was in, in America, for example, Britain is, is maybe in between the two to a certain extent, but in America there was a very strong idea that actually representative fiction and representative art is vital, that one needs to represent. And I don't actually dismiss that idea. I think that, I think that in a world where certain narratives are being intentionally marginalized and ignored, um, it's it's vital for people to sort of, you know, uh, champion those narratives and tell those sorts of narratives. And, and I think that in, in the current moment, we're seeing that impulse of, of sort of representative fiction. And the most extreme version of that is kind of auto-fiction, you know, where, in a sense, you're representing just yourself. Like, I'm, this is a novel about me. But, I, but I, I'm not convinced that that's the only way to go. And so I'm interested in, I guess, in, in a way of exploring the other approach, which is, a, which is, which is in this novel's case, a kind of not overtly representative fiction, although maybe it is representative. I mean, maybe Anders' experience and my experience are, are somehow deeply tied, you know. But it's not representative in the way we think of it, that this is a, you know, 51-year-old, brown, you know, Muslim origin, Pakistani guy. For me, that's, that's important because I think it sort of rests on your own sense of self. If your sense of self is such that you think that there is a representative function that you can play in a particular work of art, and you feel that that's true, and you feel that it's um, what you want to do, you know, fantastic. But if you're someone like me who feels inherently kind of mixed 
who thinks that you know if I if I were to claim a representative position, I would be making it up. Um, it's not really true of me. You know, I'm I'm a bit of this, a bit of that. I think for me, it's better not to do it. And and I think I think that both kinds of literatures need to exist. So what you left with in the last white man, I said, I guess, is a kind of cultural appropriation, right? Which is like this is a novel about you know white people who written by somebody who isn't white, except that. You know, nobody has yet experienced what happens in a novel of a white person who becomes brown. I did think about that. Yeah. I was really wondering how yeah. different the book would be if it was from the perspective of the janitor instead. Well, that is, so, so I oh, mean, we should really open up the floor. Yeah, we'll open up. But, but yeah, so there's, 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 the one thing is that there's you know, there's, there's no um, you know non-white characters as, as we've talked about, and and and, and that's because. The reader can use that non-white character as a way of, of thinking that's my point of view, or that's a way of judging these characters, which makes it, which removes the tension of, of figuring out what you really feel about the situation. But, but separate from that, I didn't want to write a novel in a sense. Um, I thought of you know a novel where maybe it was the other way around, maybe people stop being brown. Mm. But I thought there's something implicit in that, which is a, a sort of a kind of assimilation. And I think it's an impossible assimilation because the thing being assimilated to doesn't actually exist. So I thought more interesting to, in fact, instead of having characters stopping being brown, mm. to say that this imaginary thing called whiteness is something people stop believing in, um, and what happens then? And that's sort of where we wind up and wind up with that. I think that's a great place to leave off. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you, Mason. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.